Hi human, my name is Tom and I live on the web at tdjacobs.com and also healingsuicide.com. Um, it's been a long time since I've done some audio stuff. I've been kind of laying low doing my work diligently, <laughs> uh, going through a progressed moon time in the 12th house and actually as of today it's about 8 days away from conjuncting my natal Pluto, so I've, I've been, um, I would say distracted, or I've had my plate full with, <laughs> with uh, dealing with a bunch of um, unconscious material coming to light, so hopefully, you know, <laughs> hopefully the plan is, by clearing a bunch of garbage out, unconscious Plutonian pain and grief and whatever, uh, that I become a stronger, wiser person. Time will tell. Um, we'll see. I don't know what's going to happen. I really don't. <laughs> ah, uh, anyway, so, um, so enough about me. Anyway, so this is, a this is kind of a karmic profile, a little bit of David Lynch, and I want to call it, can we talk about David Lynch? And it's kind of a dear diary thing too, because I'd like to process out a couple things. I've had a, sometimes when I do karmic profiles like this, I have a, I know quite a lot about the person's life and work or something, and sometimes I don't, but I notice something in the person's birth chart and I'm like oh there is a there is a potential there for a very interesting evolutionary astrology teaching opportunity oh look myth or archetype or oh look a planet square the nodes or something you know Pluto in the whatever house and so this is kind of a mix because I don't I'm certainly not an expert on David Lynch but I have um had an awareness of his well starting with Twin Peaks like a lot of people on TV and um I don't know, 1990, 91, something like that. So I've, I've been aware of him since then in that context, and then several films. And what kind of triggered this recently was um, something else um, that also fits with Can We Talk About <laughs> that I'll, I'll insert here, this movie I watched. Um, and it was, I, I swear to God, it was the worst movie ever. It was the worst movie ever. And anyway, I was researching it and looking it up, and the director had disowned the final cut, saying, <laughs> because, <laughs> because he didn't have full creative control over every decision, he's disowning it. Well, you know what? The film fucking sucks. That director is Dennis Hopper. Can we talk about Dennis Hopper for a minute? Anyway, it's really brief here. Um, this is the worst movie ever made. It's listed under um, Catch Fire, like one word, Catch Fire, but also Backtrack. The reason this was significant for me was because Jodie Foster is also in this movie. And this was a weird, this is a weird, um, a weird twisted juvenile fantasy of a little boy in adult Dennis Hopper form with Jodie Foster as this like objectified woman. It was really weird and creepy, and somehow he rapes her, and then she warms up to him, and they get together. Sorry. <laughs> anyway, I was ranting about it in my journal a few weeks ago just to like try to process it out, because it <laughs> was released in 1990. So I was like, how could Jodie Foster... we talk about Jodie Foster? <laughs> how could Jodie Foster do this movie? How could she do this movie? Like, well before this... She's a pro. <laughs> you know, she, like, knows what she's doing well before 1990. Um, having been through a lot as a child performer, etc. 
a lot of weird attention, a lot of stalker energy, whatever. So, um, you know, being part of the industry from an early age, etc. But, but here's the deal. It was released, oh, what was it, like, a few weeks, oh my gosh, it was released a few weeks before filming on Silence of the Lambs began, or something like within three or four weeks, so anyway, she did this before that, uh, anyway, so um, how could she do this, whatever, the only thing I came up with was that she must have owed the devil a favor, and the devil said, look, you're going to have an amazing career. You've had one already. You're going to keep having... I just I just want to like really leave you with some fucking psychological scars. So go do this Dennis Hopper movie. <laughs> That's the only thing I could come up with. Um, but anyway, that when I was researching and reading about this film, the name Alan Smithy came out because that's what a director would credit. Like, the director would say, put Alan Smithy as the director on the film. I disown this right? I didn't have creative control. So anyway, Dennis Hopper did this with that film. I looked up Alan Smithy. I'd heard it before through friends when I lived in LA who were like aspiring filmmakers, etc. So that, I read this short list and David Lynch was on this list having um, disowned Dune, which had a profound impact on me. And then later I read the Frank Herbert novel and as, you know, several of Frank Herbert's Dune novels, but Anyway, they each had a profound effect on me, and there are things about the David Lynch version. I was like, oh my god, that has nothing to do with Frank Herbert. That and Anyway, so I've had this like real interest in certain things about David Lynch. Anyway, so this whole Alan Smithy thing with this completely shitty Dennis Hopper movie with the tragedy of, you know, Jodie Foster being ensnared in this juvenile shitty fantasy. <laughs> like, there's one scene... I have... Sorry, Dear Diary, I have to get this out. There's one scene in Backtrack or whatever. Here's, here's the basic premise, because I, I don't want you ever to watch it, so I want to sate your curiosity about the about the complex and convoluted plot. Jodie Foster plays an artist who accidentally witnesses a mob hit, and so the mob, so she flees and successfully lives out of town, and she's traveling around under her assumed name, and um, the mob sends Dennis Hopper to retrieve her to find her, track her down, to bring her back so the mob people can kill her. So he finds her because of a mistake. She tries to get someone to mail something far away from where she is, and they don't. They, the, the, it gets mailed from where she is. So anyway, Dennis Hopper comes to this town and finds her and anyway kidnaps her. And uh, she's creeped out by him, of course. And he, uh, I know this is, can we talk about David Lynch, but I just I gotta get this out. Um, this is my therapy. So <laughs> thank you, dear listener. This is, um, and there's a scene where he's behind her, and I think he puts his hand on her, sh- on her shoulders, and he says, um, in this cheap motel room, like, where he's, like, kidnapped her, right? And he says, um, I've never loved anybody before, but I love you. And the look on her face is nothing but horror. (laughs) Just abject disgust and horror. And then I don't know if he kisses her neck or something, but but anyway, then it cuts to the next morning, and she's like packing her little bag. And obviously they had sex, right? The the filmmakers 
tools just tell you that, right? Like, the last thing you see is him kissing her neck or shoulder or something, and she's horrified. They get in the car, they're driving, and she calls him a rapist. So you, so you know they, right? So, so it's revealed they have sex. And, and they, they keep talking, and he basically says, I'm not so good with feelings. That's a quote. But I'm not so good with feelings. Can you teach me? And somehow, <laughs> this character warms to him, and they're, like, enjoying being together for the rest of this trip, including, like, sex stuff in bed. It's not, like, revealing sex in the movie, but, like, that intimacy is quite obviously clear, clear, clearly uh, portrayed. <laughs> and then, um, actually, before she warms up to him, he said <laughs> he brings out this bag or whatever from his suitcase of her like underwear and lingerie that he took from her apartment, her house, before he came to get her, and like asks her to try it on. I, I just fucking I couldn't even believe this is happening. Anyway, I had to watch the whole thing because I. Can we talk about David Lynch? Anyway, Alan Smithy, this thing about disowning Dune, and Dune had this like great effect on me. The reason this is triggered recently, aside from these, the Alan Smithy thing and this travesty of a movie where the devil trapped Jodie Foster to <laughs> have to pretend to have to have to be you know spend time with Dennis Hopper. Um, then a friend of mine, I don't know. A couple weeks ago, ten days ago, sent me a link to a song, which was from a David Lynch album from 2013, and the album is called, uh, oh my god, The Big Dream. So anyway, I was listening to different songs in there, and one of them, the, the title track, The Big Dream, I, was, I wrote a poem, and I was like, whoa, I'm kind of inspired by David Lynch right now. So today I started, I was doing research on it, and I looked up his chart, and I saw a couple things, and I said, whoa, this might be... A, um, a convenient evolutionary astrology teaching moment with David Lynch's chart. So I want to run through his chart and talk about some things. Again, not an expert on his life, but I want to... This is kind of a Neptune teaching. And I want to point out to you ways of thinking about Neptune. Also Chiron teaching, a little bit of a Pluto teaching, a little bit of a True Blackman Lilith teaching, and a little bit of an Eros, E-R-O-S, teaching. So let's let's get into this. Um... Uh, well, I did want to say a couple things about my experiences with this stuff. I was intrigued by Twin Peaks. I was in high school. I was a senior in high school. I had some, like, commitments with activities that prevented me from watching every episode of Twin Peaks. Um, but later I did. Um, I mean, like, four or five years ago, I finished watching it. <laughs> but, um, but I remember being completely um, altered. Like, like... Um, like I said, I loved Dune, but I knew it was like a unique studio film thing. And then um, I found, I think, Mulholland Drive really interesting. No, that's not that's the right thing. That's not the right title. Now I have to go to his... Um... Oh, jeez. What's it called? What's it called? Filmography. Yeah, Mulholland Drive... Lost Highway was hard for me. Uh, Inland Empire was hard for me. Mulholland Drive I loved. Wild at Heart I wasn't into at all. Blue Velvet I was like, take it or leave it. I saw that in college. Elephant Man, of course, um, had an impact. But again, that's like not, you know, that's like a, 
more mainstream, you know, studio thing. Okay, so anyway, um, I remember being completely messed up when I saw Eraserhead. I mean, I was altered, and I wanted to take apart my cranium to find where the images were stored and the sound, like during the quiet parts of the film and the like images of the deformed baby. I fucking could not handle that. Uh, so anyway, I had a really hard time with that one, but, but um, I have this relationship with him for like 30 years, let's say it that way, relationship with his work. And today I was looking up some pictures, some paintings, pictures of paintings. Uh, but I, let's get into the chart here. Let me end of Dear Diary thing. So first of all, Pluto in the ninth house, searching for what's true. Uh, higher thought, you know, um, it, it can be the mark of somebody who's kind of has an academic approach to things or is a phil philosopher, right? In Leo, the need to express, the need to find one's personal philosophy, uh, and that's retrograde. So, I'm, so that means he's trying to figure out the right expression. How can I be empowered by expressing my philosophy? And for some people with retrograde Pluto like this, in Leo, they'll mimic what looks normal and then they'll innovate later. Because the nature of retrograde Pluto is that you're trying to figure out your groove. You might feel weird and then look around at what seems normal and mimic it because you don't want to feel weird. That's the nature of Pluto, of any retrograde planet in my view. So anyway, so this is an expression thing and he's got a worldview. And so, great. Okay, great. That's perfect. Awesome. <laughs> then, um, then we have um, the south node in the second house, which can be quite conventional, um, but it's in Sagittarius, which says there's a lot of imagination and belief runs strong. And a lot of people with south node in the second house either have a tremendous amount of self-esteem or they're working on it or they feel blocked, and uh, and sometimes Sagittarius in the second house can be my beliefs about my worth are quite strong. So some people with this kind of struggle with self-esteem stuff throughout different phases of their life. Some people have a clear idea of who they are, right, guided by belief and whatever. But there's a multi-life layering uh, and, and conditioning with the south node of, um, you know, knowing what things are worth. Like having a sense of what time and energy are worth or what money is worth. Again, beliefs can get in there and kind of mess things up, but but there's a clarity there. Um, I do want to say that the asteroid Pallas Athene is within 10 degrees of the south node. And with aspects of the node, specifically conjunctions or squares, conjunctions to either node or squares, I use 10 degrees. Not everybody does, uh, but that's, that's what I find uh, useful. Pallas Athene is the wise warrior who's also an artist and a stateswoman. It can be about loyalty. It can be about creativity and seeing patterns. Um, it can also be something that we sometimes try to separate from ourselves in order to be more successful. Remember the story of Parthenogenesis, where it was always said that she was born fully formed, fully armored, uh, geared up, right, from her father's head, but the father had eaten the pregnant mother, swallowed her, in order to take credit <laughs> for what the mom did. Um, so at a certain point, uh, Athena is um, challenged at, um, to um, admit that she was not born of a woman in order to cement her place in society and her um, worthiness of being 
you know, respected and uh, whatever, in the image of the father. During a court case, she's a character witness for somebody else, and in order to be taken seriously, she has to admit this. So she does. So we sometimes divorce or try to separate some truth about ourselves, and so we don't own this part of ourselves. So with him in some lifetimes, it might be that, you know, there's a warrior energy, and there's a, you know, and it can also be that he might, dis, you know, uh, dissociate himself or detach himself from something, right? We don't know what that is. And that also runs through his family system as well. But I get the sense of that creativity, pattern recognition, that kind of thing that is definitely, definitely really strong in him. A strong palace Athene is quite often very creative, but may detach from it. That's kind of what I want to insert there. So um, then we have, uh, and also Ceres is conjunct the South Node, but I don't want to read about his family more. <laughs> well, his 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 father um, worked for uh, what was it the uh, U.S. the USDA USDA yeah yeah the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Um, anyway, so there's a thing in there about crops. <laughs> uh, with series there, um, but anyway. Um, what I want to look at is the Neptune square of the nodes. And whenever you see a square to the nodes, and this teaching is, um, I've taken what I've learned from different EA people and kind of worked a lot in tutoring with the Ascended Master I work with, who was Hermes, Jehudi, Thoth, St. Germain, Merlin. And um, so how I work with this, not as a skipped step or a missed step, that does not make sense to me given how I understand how the soul experiences things. Um, how how our consciousness grows over many lifetimes. It doesn't make sense to me that like you missed it or skipped it. It's for me it's an unresolved issue. You know four or five things really well about how to live this energy. But let's say there are nine or ten or twelve things that anybody would need to know in order to be happy and healthy with this energy. So it's like in every lifetime there's a question mark following you around. And the question is, what's the right way to live this energy? So again, you have certain things you're really good at, but certain things you might not understand. You might rely on those things you're good at and not expand your repertory and make new choices. That's how I see squares to the nodes. Like I have Venus square the nodes. It's not that I've not done Venus. <laughs> it's that I need to figure out healthier versions beyond my assumptions of how to live it. Healthier expressions of Venus. Cleaning up boundaries or whatever. Like I need to learn those things. Because there's certain parts of it I'm really good at, but it might not serve me if I don't expand my repertory and learn to make new choices based in reality and reason. And we're all doing that with our squares to the nodes. So think about a square to the nodes in the 11th house, an unresolved issue about, if in your mind you think the 11th house is groups and friends and hopes and wishes and dreams, that's fair because that's what we've been taught over and over again. That shorthand in our astrological minds says it's about groups. But for me, it's about goals. What do you want your future to look like? Once you know what that is, then you find like-minded others to co-create it with you, therefore groups and friends. So a planet square the nodes in the 11th says, my relationship to society, my relationship to groups, my relationship to goals. How do I create community? 
what people are worth hanging out with. Uh, what goals are worth having? These are question marks following the person around. So Southland in the second house says, I may be quite self-reliant. Then a planet square the nodes from the 11th house says, yeah, what are people for? What are, the, what is this, what are these groups for? Because I know what I'm doing. I have Southland in the second house. <laughs> okay, so what groups should I be part of? What goals are worth pursuing? How do I turn my vision of my future or my vision of the future I want to live in, the future community, the future world, how do I connect with people and turn that into reality? That's a square to the nodes from the 11th house. So in some lifetimes, maybe including this one, uh, the person is part of the wrong groups or feels like he or she can't connect with groups. Or is the phrase that we might encounter with this is um, searching for my tribe. Okay. So square the nodes. Neptune, square the nodes. Art, right? the divine source that flows within us. Spirituality, connection, um, you know, deal, creating and consuming art, feeling the flow through us of inspiration, inspired creativity. But Neptune's also surrender, surrendering to goals or surrendering to a vision of the future that may be the group mind's vision of the future like what society will handle or what society will tolerate, so to speak. People with Neptune in the 11th square of the nodes may have a history of blending in and then waking up and saying, I don't want to blend in here. This doesn't feel true to me. So this Neptune is in Libra, which is, you know, very creative and wants peace, but it's retrograde. So in a bunch of lifetimes, he's surrendering to the wrong thing. That's what I want to get at. Or he's being shown, you should, but by his conditioning influence, with the south node being these contracts with families in every lifetime, to teach us something, something square that south node says this is an unresolved issue in the family system as well as the individual's path or journey. So he's got a portion of stuff to figure out about this, and it overlaps with what people in his family are also trying to figure out along their soul's journeys. So he, in a bunch of lifetimes, has been shown you're supposed to surrender. You're supposed to go with the flow. You're supposed to be part of the world. Basically, go where they tell you. Follow the other people. Do what you're supposed to do. But it's retrograde. He needs to upgrade his experience by putting his foot down and finding out, here's the key to this, what is true for him that may not be true for others. So Pluto in the ninth house, I'm searching for the truth. I'm trying to figure out how to express my truth. Um, Neptune in the 11th house, retro square the nodes, I'm sometimes in some lifetimes swept along by what society says is true, but it may be a delusion or an illusion. So how can I get to the truth of what feels correct to me and not submit to the cultural, you know, assumptions about what truth is or what art should look like in this case, Neptune and Libra. So think about somebody who was a painter and a photographer, a filmmaker. I think he studied, he went to art institutes as a painter first, as a, as a young person. Um, somebody who makes music, 
right? Musician, painter, artist, photographer, filmmaker. To some people, that might that might um, seem improbable or impossible or too difficult or something. But think about having a multi-life history of running Neptune energy and looking for the right expression. Pluto retro in Leo, I need to find the right expression. Neptune retrograde in Libra in the 11th, I'm trying to find the right expression in how I see the world and my vision, my creative vision of what's really going on in the world. He talks, he talks a little about seeing, a, I'm paraphrasing, but like a world behind the apparent world. Like society, it looks perfect, but then there's like something else going on. Like there was an image in the Wikipedia entry about um, manicured lawns and elegant houses around where he grew up. But then he sees this tree and this like sap is like oozing out of it. And this like, this like thing that's right in front of us, but we've had this manicured world. And so we don't really notice the like difficult thing or the violent thing. And that's part of Mars and Saturn in the eighth house is seeing, you know, looking for, looking for deeper truth under the surface and kind of like being aware of, of, of things underlying things. And in cancer, those planets can make him, um, you know, aware of, um, undercurrents and subtext and reading people's emotions or body language in a really profound way. Right. I, I also want to mention here this thing about this Virgo moon on the midheaven. This, by the way, I didn't give you his birth time, uh, verboy, but I'll give it to you now. And it is in the description. I'll make sure it's in the description of the audio. January 20th, 1946 at 3 a.m. Again, rated double A uh, in Missoula, Montana. But anyway, if you look at his chart and you see, um, oh yeah, you know, Virgo moon right on the midheaven in the 10th. You might think this person is quite interested in conventional consensus reality, right? Isn't this, this person might be an accountant or might marry an accountant, like in his heart is a Virgo moons person. Um, but it's, uh, you know, that would speak, I think, not to a relationship with, you know, needing to conform to reality, but a way of doing work, being extremely methodical and analytical and detail-oriented about doing work. Anyway, I just wanted to throw that note in there. Because if you're looking at this from a not-evolutionary perspective, you might assume he's much more consensus-friendly uh, <laughs> than, than he actually is. Uh, and maybe the way he runs his, you know, business, the way that maybe that he operates as a creative in, a crea in creative industries, maybe that is quite conventional. I just, I doubt it. <laughs> I doubt it. Also, Capricorn Sun. Um, but here's the deal with that Capricorn Sun. It is conjunct Arjun Suri, which says, I have to follow my inner wisdom, right? Or I'm not sane. Sun, you know, sane, sanity is a key word for sun. Uh, but Arjun Suri says, I can't take the advice of others. I must operate according to my own kind of logic here. But also, and this is almost more, this is just as important, that Arjun Suri thing is huge. But it's also conjunct, the sun is asteroid Eros at four, just under five degrees Aquarius in the, in the third house too. And that says, my Capricorn sun is filtering things through Aquarian inspiration, being different. So yes, he's a Capricorn with Venus and Mercury in Capricorn, 
but it's filtered like that Capricorn Sun filters everything through the lens of Eros also which gets inspired so we got the word erotic from Eros and a lot of stuff about sexuality and our assumptions about you know about that but it's really in my view it's a it's a place it's a spark of inspiration and life force deep within a person that is underneath where we would differentiate creativity from sexuality that's how I see Eros um, it's asteroid 433 by the way and Arjun Suri is asteroid 20300 so anyway when you look at his Virgo moon in the midheaven Capricorn Sun you, you might assume he's quite conventional but here you go filtered through the lens of Eros and the Neptune square the nodes retro in the in the 11th house now there's another layer to this which is Southland ruler uh, and so let me just think yeah well let's 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 just back on this Neptune for a bit square the nodes I'm trying to figure out the right way to do this energy um, anybody with this kind of setup will have things that don't work things that don't come to fruition even things that might be very important to them that don't end up happening regarding goals or group involvement or something like any creative person will come up against stuff like this uh, we all do but of course in creative industries it can be heightened because you're unless you're a completely self-funded lone wolf you're you're gonna get rejections at some point <laughs> uh, but anyway uh, and there's some notes on projects and things he was really into as a, as a student and a younger artist where it just didn't work and something got contaminated or you know was interfered with or something by somebody who had the who had influence or power over it or the budget you know control the budget um, but the sense of what will fly like what will society tolerate or in the case of a razor head what will an audience endure <laughs> that's my little jab um, how much suffering <laughs> can um, a well-meaning viewer endure how much crazy <laughs> anyway so um, but there's something about throwing stuff at the wall and seeing if it works so lots of kinds of inspiration lots of kinds of creative output or or modalities for creative expression but you find out some things don't work some things do work can you have faith in your creative vision even if society hates something or you can't get funding for it can you come back to trusting the creative vision and continuing to let ideas flow through you that's part of the Neptune score of the notes I guarantee you in some lifetimes he's doing something creative that does not fly and it's really painful and he may not regroup in some lifetimes in this lifetimes he's just regrouping over and over again he's just doing a bunch of different kinds of things with quite a lot of self-confidence and then people either like it or they don't um, but he's regrouping all the time so think about that Neptune as potentially indicating in some lives an artist who feels suppressed or who loses his way and then look at David Lynch as this collection of inspirations where he keeps returning to it in all these different modalities I was like David Lynch is a musician I didn't know that I've been under an astrology rock for years just like cranking out books or you know doing a bunch of coaching and channeling and whatever a lot of readings um, so anyway this album from 2013 I found quite you know personally inspiring I was like yeah I really kind of like some of this but I didn't know he did all those things 
I knew he had been a painter and a photographer and, of course, filmmaker, but... Okay, so now let's go on, and if you're tracking things at home, Pluto is step one in my four-step, so to speak, karmic story analysis or evolutionary astrology multi-life story analysis. Uh, Pluto, the empowerment journey of the soul, the ups and downs of empowerment, strength, confidence. Um, and then step two is south node, kind of conditioning factors, including families of origin in every lifetime, the lens through which you see the world. So how you think the world is with step two at the south node. And then step three, south node ruler by sign, um, how this individual shows up as a unique person in every lifetime. So south node is Sagittarius, so we look for the ruler by sign, which is Jupiter. And that's in the 11th house again in Libra, conjunct Chiron. So um, I've talked about this extensively with uh, the former U.S. president's chart analysis in several MP3s. So you can look those up on SoundCloud. I have done a lot of extensive work on like um, how to understand South Node Ruler Conjunct Chiron, but I want to repeat a little of it for you here in case you don't want to go listen to a karmic analysis of a um, <laughs> toxic expletive. Um, anyway, sorry, I've just stopped, I've decided to like stop doing work on him and talking about him, but it's just like, anyway, I can reference those MP3s. So South Node Ruler in the 11th house, again, being part of groups, right? So the Neptune there says, I might not understand things because the square of the notes. But South Node Ruler there says, in every lifetime, I'm an 11th house type person. In Libra, I'm creative or diplomatic or whatever. Or I have great hair. <laughs> whatever. Um, but Conjunct Chiron, it's several things. Now, in the other person's MP3 analyses, I was talking about how that how that former president is so has such terrible self-esteem that he becomes a bully because he's so empty inside. He feels like he's a turd. He knows he is. He knows he has nothing of value, so he's always like putting everyone else down to try to seem superior and stronger. Anyway, with David Lynch, it's not the same. Uh, he doesn't seem to have a self-esteem pit inside him. Like He's not defined by zero self-esteem. You know, maybe that's because of the Capricorn Sun and, and Mercury and Venus or whatever it is, the Virgo Moon in the 10th house, like being really good at something, right? But, but he shows up with a unique vision in every lifetime. Now, if he were a person in business, he would do it in a unique way. If he were raising children, he would do it in a weird way. If he were um, you know, building houses, he would do it in a different way. Creative, but unique. So every one of these creative endeavors, there's something interesting. Because he's Chiron. He shows up as Chiron. Now, Chiron people can fear rejection and hide their uniqueness. Because they don't want to stand out too much. That's what like most people with Chiron issues who come to me in my counseling practice... That's where they are. You know, most of us are needing to own the ways in which we're unique. Heal the inner kids, the inner child's fears of being seen as different and therefore potentially uh, garnering or gaining rejection. 
Uh, but David Lynch, obviously, at, at least in his creative career, doesn't have this issue. Like, maybe he has unprocessed mommy or daddy issues. Maybe he doesn't. <laughs> That's kind of my shorthand for chironic crap, like unprocessed mommy and daddy issues. Because Chiron uh, pain and wounding is activated when, like, uh, shortly at birth, after, you know, right after birth in the first few weeks or months of life. So we might carry an inner infant. You think about inner child work, but an inner infant who can't talk. Uh, who needs to know that he or she is safe and unconditionally loved. Anyway, he doesn't present as that, but he has this unique creative vision. And Juno, the asteroid Juno, he's committed to it. So if he has a goal, if he has a vision of the future, he's committed to it. This is not wishy-washy, I wonder what's going to happen next. It's the strong um, Palace Athena on the South Node strategy, planning, uh, I would say cunning, and then, um, but like wise, being able to see ahead and plan things. And then the Juno on the South Node ruler, commitment to the goal, commitment to the vision. So even if, even as some of his stuff is really like messed up my brain, <laughs> like made me want to crawl under a warm blanket, suck my thumb and shut out the world. <laughs> And watch Teletubbies <laughs> to try to recoup a sense of hope in the future. Hope for the future. Goodness. Anyway, even as that, I'm very grateful for these varieties of expression showing us varieties of Neptune, varieties of Chiron, showing us a commitment to vision, right? This is, um, I'm kind of grateful for this. I'm kind of being inspired now. Now, now the other thing I want to talk about briefly is, um, um, True Black Moon Lilith, in the chart associated with this MP3, it uh, shows up in the first house at zero, just under one, of zero degrees and 50 minutes of Sagittarius, L-I-L with O in parentheses, the oscillating apogee. Um, that's a true Black Moon Lilith. I don't use the mean position at all, ever. Uh, some people are following the work of, I don't know if it's one or more astrologers who are talking about using both. People write me often and say, oh, what about this corridor between the two? I'm like, I don't use the average position because it's fake. I want to know where the true Black Moon Lilith really is, where that point is, because that's how you experience the archetype. The other one's like a Barbie doll. It's like not real. Anyway, it's, a it's what the mind finds clever and interesting, but the actual visceral experience of Lilith in your root chakra is indicated by the true Black Moon. If you're on astro.com, on the extended chart selection page, under additional points or asteroids, you would type in H13. That that gets H13. That gets you the, the LIL parenthesis O parenthesis. Okay. So anyway, Lilith energy is inspiration and the need for autonomy and freedom. And in Sagittarius, that's really loud. You know, that's where mine is actually too. Um, mine's in my second house, but in Sagittarius. And um, the need to not be confined. So this creative expression, all the stuff in the chart we're talking about. Yes, he's a Capricorn, but it's conjunct Eros and Aquarius. Um, you know, yes, he's a second house south node, but, you know, Neptune square the nodes in Libra in the 11th, retro. Um, and that south node ruler conjunct Chiron, he shows up as different. He's got all these different things going on. And Lilith in the first is sometimes erratic expression, which if you read about his life or his you know behavior, you'll see it. 
Um, but it's a way of relating to um, instinct, embodying instinct, and not being um, hemmed in or fenced in. So people with a strong Lilith energy go against society's grain because they need to be independent, especially in the first house in Sagittarius. Obviously, Scorpio rising, kind of an intense figure, look in his eyes, you know, you'll see all that stuff in there. Um, but anyway, I just wanted to mention that that true Black Moon Lilith uh, in, the, in the first. Also, um, square the Virgo moon on the midheaven. So he's going to need sometimes to go against, like he'll feel internally friction about being orderly or following rules. Because that inward root chakra instinctive pre-verbal, which means pre-rational, uh, instinct, it looks irrational. It's changeable. It's erratic. It's, you know, it's a, a different expression. So, um, anyway, I'm not covering the north node for him just because um, it's not really part of what I'm talking about today. Whatever. It's not a complete karmic profile. But, but yeah, I wanted to... Um, Oh, you know what? There's one other thing here. Yeah, Eris, and Aries in the fifth square of the nodes. And and um, Eris, we push people's buttons. We activate other people's sensitivities or trigger their hot button issues or their fears and pains or sense of inadequacy or something. Eris can result in competition and... Um, kind of soap opera dynamics where we try to escalate in competition or conflict because we feel a raw nerve exposed or something like that. Anyway, we're in this house of creative expression, fifth house in Aries. The more assertive he is about his creative vision, the more he'll push people's buttons. That's square the notes too. How to deal with the fact when I share my creativity or announce my opinion, share my opinion, that I might rub people the wrong way and they might, you know, blame me for for being a problem. Like, Eris people are sometimes considered uh, to be problems. They walk into the room, they say something, somebody's triggered, somebody gets defensive or upset, and then that looks like it's the Eris person, but the Eris person is a problem. It looks like that. But Eris is really about catalyzing each other into growth. I just taught a, a two-week... Uh, webinar on Eris called Lighting Fires. It's a, I've done it before um, years ago, and I just kind of unearthed it, and then there were um, five or six uh, women who joined in, I guess six women, and it was so amazing to tell these people who bother other people sometimes that it's okay that they're doing it, because we catalyze each other into growth. Anyway, I don't have a formal Eris teaching out there, but I've done these mini-readings and done these workshops or these webinars. Um, but anyway... Uh, Eris square the nodes, how do I deal with the, the idea that other people might be bothered by what I'm doing, or it might expose their insecurities or raw nerves? I mean, I definitely felt that with um, Eraserhead, because there isn't that, there, there's quiet, there, there, there's a lot of visual, and there isn't as much dialogue as you might expect. Well, I was reading today, um, it's like a 41-page script, but that was an 89-minute film or something like that, something close to that. So there's there's like uh, visual cues and sounds, and um, and it kind of like bores into your head. And I felt I felt definitely activated, like I'm losing my mind, which was one of my insecurities. 
which is why I talk so much, because <laughs> I'm trying to fill the space. Because part of me is nervous about my Neptunian mind getting away from itself. Anyway, I'm just admitting that on the DL, kind of like inserting that. I've been realizing that lately because I, um, I've been trying to sit still more and meditate more. Not meditate, but be quiet. And I notice part of me is on edge because of this. Anyway, so Eraserhead did that. So that is going to be <laughs> as progressed moon is on my Pluto on the 12th, and I'm admitting that. Um, thanks for playing. Uh, that's the end of this MP3. Um, uh, enjoy yourself, enjoy your life, and your people, <laughs> and your hobbies. Anyway, I'm on the web at tdjacobs.com, and also uh, healingsuicide.com. And uh, take care. <laughs>